Acts chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. Paul and his traveling companions, as well as the other passengers from their shipwrecked vessel, remain on the island of Malta for about three months. When the weather is once again suitable for sea travel, they resume their journey to Rome. The purpose of this journey, which has been under our consideration, is so that Paul can stand trial before the emperor, Nero, in Rome. And far from a passenger on a pleasure cruise, of course, Paul is a prisoner. And he continues to remain in custody. It's here that we're resuming our reading with this passage. This morning in Acts chapter 28, I'll read verses 11 through 15. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Rigium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Hutili. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Apius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. This is the word of the Lord. A useful definition of culture, the word culture, is the customs, arts, social institutions, and achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group. Culture is a neutral word. It's neither positive nor negative. It's a word that's used broadly. When I speak of the culture, I mean the outlook, the belief systems, and the assumptions of a group of people. So American culture would be the prevailing worldview of our society, the beliefs that people live out Regardless of what they say or don't say, they believe in the assumptions Americans make about how the world works. Now, when we're talking about a block of people as large as a nation, we, we realize that we have to make generalizations because within American society, of course, there are many different cultures and their respective practices that are represented. But we all understand that there is a prevailing mindset. An American culture, which is related to and often mirrors Western culture at large. Now, there are many positive cultural traits that America possesses as a nation. And for many of those, I'm thankful. But for our purposes this morning, as I talk about culture, I'm not referring to these positive traits. When I use the word culture... I'm speaking of the post-Christian religion as a private matter. Anything goes, no moral absolutes, truth is relative. And the only sin is pointing out that there is such a thing as sin mindset that permeates our current climate. What I want us to see this morning, and maybe you're wondering why is he talking about culture. What I want us to see this morning is what this text has to teach us about engaging culture. Because we want to engage culture around us without compromising our Christian convictions on one hand, nor isolating ourselves on the other. And so we're going to make three observations about culture. 
First of all, interacting with it. Secondly, disarming it. And thirdly, freedom from it. So first of all, interacting with the culture. Interacting with the culture. It was dangerous to try to sail from November to January. Malta's numerous harbors provided safe shelters for a number of ships who waited for the favorable winds that sometimes began as early as February. And so we read the 276 passengers from the ship that went down off the coast of Malta stayed for three months on Malta, awaiting the time when they could resume their journey, when it was once again safe to sail. Now, it was an Alexandrian ship, if you recall, that went down, and the one they find available is also a ship originating from the North African city of Alexandria. The centurion Julius, who was in charge of the prisoners, he would have simply requisitioned passage on this ship for the soldiers and the prisoners in his charge. Now, we don't know if everyone from the ship that went down is able to board this particular vessel that's bound for the shore of Italy, but we do know at least Paul and those traveling with him, like Luke, and possibly the other prisoners were placed on board of this particular ship. And they cast off as soon as weather permits, probably as early as the first week of February. Luke, of course, the writer of Acts, he makes an interesting observation about this new ship. He writes in verse 2 of chapter 28, it had the twin brothers for its figurehead. Now, what does that mean? Well, the twin brothers, they were gods, lowercase g. They were the, the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. And these were believed to be sons of Jupiter, his Roman name, or Zeus, his Greek name. And these twin brothers were believed to protect sailors and innocent travelers. And they did so by apparently subduing the sea and granting safe travels. So the images of Castor and Pollux are painted on each side of the ship's prow at the very front on each, on each edge. In other words, this ship and the voyages it made were dedicated to pagan gods. Now, it is abundantly clear by this point that all of the pagan deities that had been beseeched during those two weeks at sea in the deadly storm did nothing to help the passengers. But what's also abundantly clear is that Paul's God did in fact safely deliver all of these. Luke points this out to remind us of the stark differences, the cultural differences between the Christians on board this ship and the non-Christians. And the difference in this case is primarily religious. But, of course, that area touches on so many different areas. The difference between what people believe or don't believe about God will give them opposite perspectives on just about everything. Paul and his companions, they know that God created the heavens, the earth, the sea that they are sailing upon. God has power over the weather. God determines in his providence where the ship will be every second of the day. God responds to a seeking heart and to heartfelt prayer. God loves everyone, desires none to perish, and has provided a way of salvation to all through a person named Jesus. Paul and his Christian companions, they understand this. But contrast this with those who believe in gods, like Castor and Pollux, the twins, who do not have power to create, 
They are not infinite in power, nor are all of them able to do anything about the weather. These gods are limited by time and space. They have very little control, much less sovereignty over the affairs of men. They are appeased only by sacrifices. And this is not out of love, but out of their own very human-like appetites and desires. These gods, they do not, as a rule, welcome prayer, nor do they have the omnipotence to answer prayer. There is no man in their system who rose from the dead, nor will there be a final judgment at which all will give account. Two different cultural perspectives. And now if you're tempted to think that the beliefs of first century Greeks and Romans have nothing to do with our own, consider this. The prevailing belief in our modern culture rejects the idea of a God who created everything out of nothing. Instead, we, and I say we as a society at large, we worship at the altar of science. We think that if we can advance far enough in technology that we can in fact control the weather and everything else for that matter. Modern culture, at least in the area of religion, rejects the idea of providence and instead believes and acts as if we came from nothing and will return to nothing. So anything that you do, do it for yourself. You only get one shot. And you're responsible to look out for you. Our modern Western culture makes sacrifices. We pour out our time and focus and resources to our idols of success and wealth and convenience. And these gods, they are never appeased. And we are never satisfied. We reject prayer because we don't believe anyone's listening and we ignore our guilty conscience because we can't accept the idea of a coming judgment. So the fact that these Christians on board a ship under the supposed protection of pagan gods, the fact that that is the situation at the moment tells us that we cannot remove ourselves from cultural influences. They're all around us. They are reality. We should not think that we can avoid negative cultural influences any more than we can avoid air. Instead, we're called to live out our Christian faith in the midst of these influences without embracing them. The only way Paul has made such a profound impact upon so many is because he was right in the middle of the midst of a bunch of people, the vast majority of them, who do not believe in the God that he worships. There is a clash of cultures, and that's okay. That's okay. There is, on one hand, a mistaken idea among some that Paul should be running around on this ship and rebuking everybody for their beliefs, that he needs to set them all straight, let them know where he stands. Then he should find a corner with the other Christians and they should refuse to interact with other passengers and try to keep anything unclean from disturbing their tranquility. There's that view amongst some Christians. But there's another mistaken idea that takes the opposite approach that Paul should let everyone know how really we're all the same. He worships his God and they worship theirs. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. Instead, we just love people, which means saying or doing nothing to make somebody else uncomfortable. 
telling someone the truth might hurt their feelings. We might be viewed as intolerant. After all, those who cry the loudest for tolerance are the quickest to be intolerant of viewpoints they disagree with. If we tell people what we, what we believe, then we're being pushy. So they might figure it out or they might not. We just want peace. Right? One mindset. Both views are unbiblical. We don't isolate ourselves from culture. We don't cut ourselves off. Nor do we capitulate to culture. Nor do we compromise to it. Because if we do either isolate or capitulate, we will never influence the culture for Jesus. The first principle, therefore, in engaging the culture is this. Be willing to interact with the culture. Be willing to interact with it. In the first century of the church, Christians simply engaged those around them as they went about their daily affairs. They didn't form isolated communities and keep to themselves. This is what the Jewish population in cities tended to do, but not the Christians. They did not form little subgroups that separated themselves from all their neighbors and co-workers. Instead, they, as we've observed in the book of Acts, they lived out their faith in Jesus as Lord and submitted to Jesus as King right where they were. And they stayed where they were, unless God called them to move to another place. They bought meat from the same meat markets. They worked the same trades. They booked passage on the same ships, on pagan ships for that matter. They, they, they coexisted. And in doing so, they rejected cultural practices that their conscience would not allow them to take part in. But at the same time, they embraced those practices which there was no conflict with scripture. These early Christians, they understood that you cannot love people in isolation. You must be with them. You must walk alongside of them. And so they lived out their beliefs where they were planted. They interacted with the culture without embracing it, Jesus. So we need to interact. Secondly, disarming the culture. Disarming the culture. We observed in our text here four more legs of the journey to Rome, three by sea and one by land. So from Malta, the vessel sails 90 miles to Syracuse. And here the ship probably would have resupplied from the abundance of provision offered on the bustling island of Syracuse. Uh, they very well also dropped off and perhaps picked up passengers. And this is reading a lot like a travel log. Luke is giving us the details. He writes about Syracuse. We stayed for three days. And leaving there, they then sailed 70 miles to Regium. This phrase in verse 13, chapter 28, we sailed around. Seems to mean that because of the winds, the ship made this zigzag course. This is a common and at times necessary maneuver in sailing. Again, details. Luke is not writing an epic tale. He's not writing mythology. He's not writing fantasy. He is recording facts. The account of Paul that we read about two weeks ago, miraculously healing the islanders, comes right before this account of these final ports the ship stopped at before their destination. If we can trust the accuracy of the account of the voyage, we can trust the accuracy of the accounts of the miraculous. 
the south wind that we read about in verse 13 meant that the ship made good time from Rhegium to Petili, sailing nearly 200 miles in two days. Petili was Rome's main port of entrance from the west, and the rest of the journey from here would be overland. In the city of Petili, we read in verse 14, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Now, we know from historical records that there was a large Jewish population in Putili. And this helps us to understand why, as we just read, there is also a church in the city. The brethren were, of course, Christians. How did they get there? Well, if you remember back in Acts chapter 2, cast your mind back. On the day of Pentecost, Jews from all over the Roman Empire are in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And when Peter stands up to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, among the people in the crowd listening to him, we read there were also visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So there's every reason to believe that some of these Jews and Gentile converts to Judaism from Rome placed their faith in Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost and returned to Rome with the gospel. After all, keep in mind, Paul has already written by this point the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, to the church in Rome nearly two years before. And then we saw back in Acts chapter 18 how Aquila and Priscilla, they left Rome, arriving in Corinth already as Christians. And so from all of this, we gather there is a church in Rome, and if there is a church in Rome, it's not too hard to imagine that there was also a church in Putili, which is only about 130 miles away. Paul and his companions, they sought out some Christians in the city and they benefited from their hospitality. Since Paul is a prisoner and is in custody, there is perfect reason to believe that at least some of the soldiers accompanied Paul and his companions and also received of the hospitality. And so here's what we notice from this. First of all, the Lord provides for his own. I know that's obvious, but we need to be reminded of it. Think of all that, that they've been through since the beginning of this long journey, even before the shipwreck, before the two weeks at sea caught in the horrific storm. The Lord has done what? He's taken care of Paul and his companions, but he's also taken care of all those traveling with them for the sake of the Christians. When God's grace is poured out upon you, even non-Christians around you benefit from it. The Lord's not going to abandon his own. He's gotten them this far. For seven days, they are provided for in Putili. And I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. If you're in God's will, God's going to meet your needs. The next thing to notice is that God provides through other Christians. Hospitality was expected in the first century. If a friend or a relative came to visit, you opened your home. No questions asked. In fact, it would have been shameful to not offer them a place to stay and to feed them. Now, this idea of hospitality is still practiced in much of the world. Our society cultivates individualism 
which means that we have to guard against viewing visitors as an inconvenience. But in our text, what we see is hospitality. When I was in Nigeria and we ran our medical clinic, we held clinic two days a week on Mondays and Thursdays from the morning to the evening. And because we could only see a limited number of people on those days, some people who were traveling from a longer distance would arrive the night before so that they could be first in line, sometimes at 5.30 in the morning in front of our house, on the following morning. Now, there were no hotels in the village, no taverns, no places to stay. But, but these strangers, they didn't worry about where they would stay because they knew that someone in the village was going to give them a place to sleep and put something in their bellies. And to my knowledge, no one ever slept under the stars who came early unless they wanted to. The villagers exercised hospitality. It was expected. Now, three days in the first century was usual for entertaining a visitor. A week was the upper limit of what was expected. And Paul and his companions, they did not overstay their welcome. But the Christians in Putili did what Christians do. They went above and beyond what was required socially. They took care of the apostles, whom they had surely heard about, as well as Luke and Aristarchus and the soldiers that were with them. They invited them to stay for seven days. Taking care of one another is a New Testament exhortation. We could say it's a command. Paul wrote earlier in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. What Paul urged the Christians in Rome to do, these Christians living south of Rome are doing. And they're directing their efforts toward Paul. God is providing through other Christians. This is what the Lord expects of us. Listen to Galatians 6.10. There Paul writes, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. As often as there are opportunities to do good to others, to show hospitality, to open up our homes, to provide for the needs of others, to show love, we are to do so. And our first obligation is toward one another. Why? Well, because we're family. Acts 28, 14 reminds us of this by saying, there we found some brethren, brothers and sisters. Now, you wouldn't think of turning flesh and blood family away if they showed up at your door unexpectedly for the weekend. Maybe you would, but I hope not. How much more should we consider our spiritual brothers and sisters family? Because the blood of Jesus that purchased us runs deeper than any physical blood. Our first obligation is to one another. And, and what happens when we are practically loving one another well? Well, John 13, 35, Jesus said in that verse, By this all men will know that you are my disciples. By what? Jesus continues, if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Now, 
Jesus is not talking about love for others. Not in that context. We're certainly called to love non-Christians. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Who's your neighbor? Anyone and everyone to whom you have an opportunity to show love. And as I read earlier from Galatians 6, let us do good to all people. But what is going to make the greatest impact is the love we show for one another. That's what Jesus said. The unique love flowing from one Christian to another, implanted by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that will be sacrificial and that will be countercultural and that the watching world around us will take note of. They will know we are followers of Jesus by how we love one another. We know the culture around us is, is growing increasingly hostile toward Christianity. But do you know what disarms hostility? It's not well-crafted arguments. It's not cold, hard truth alone. It's not isolation, nor is it capitulation. What disarms hostility? It's love. Love disarms hostility. The culture around us will be impacted through the love that we show for one another. Surely Julius the centurion and the other soldiers and travelers were also affected by the love they saw the Christians in Fertili show to Paul and his traveling companions. They saw, they observed the otherworldly love that existed between them, which is impossible, by the way, to show apart from the Holy Spirit. And Julius and his fellow soldiers, they even received of the same love in the process. As we love each other, and by extension others, because God first loved us, we will push back on the lies of our culture. The historian Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity. He was a sociologist, a professor, spent most of his career researching the sociological reasons the early church grew in the first century. Now, there's a lot of spiritual reasons it grew, but he investigated the social, the sociological reasons the church grew. And you know what? It all came back to love. This is what he wrote. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought, what the Christians brought, was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. If we're loving one another well, and we're loving others well, we will not isolate ourselves from the culture. Because it's only in that context of engaging the culture that we
we can demonstrate love. How do we show love in isolation? We can't do it. We will influence the culture from within because we are loving each other and others in the ebb and flow of daily life, interacting with the culture and showing what? Showing a better way. On the one hand, biblical love will keep us from compromising with the culture. Anytime we try to define love outside of what the Bible says pleases God and does not please God, we are distorting love. Because God's love always exists, always coexists with God's truth. Participating in the sins of our society or ignoring what the Bible calls sin is not loving. God's love, which is the love that we demonstrate, is grounded in God's truth as defined by God's word. If the love God shows never contradicts his truth, the love we show must do the same. So we will disarm the hostility of society by neither isolating our love nor compromising how the Bible defines but by showing love to one another and to others. Thirdly, freedom from the culture. Freedom from the culture. From Putili, the travelers, they would have walked up the Via Campania to the Via Appia or the Appia Way, a road, an ancient Roman road. Ancient to us, not to them. So this is one of the earliest of the Roman roads going from the city in question to Rome, it was straight, it was well-built, it was strategic, and it provided access to the city from southern Italy. We read in verse 15, And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Apias, and three ends to meet us. The news that Paul was on his way to Rome had already reached the imperial city. Some Christians who lived in Rome, they set out to meet the travelers. The market of Apias was a busy marketplace. It was located about 43 miles south of Rome proper. And this obviously would have been quite a journey on foot. But so excited were these brothers and sisters about Paul's arrival, they gladly made the journey. Again, remember, Paul has already written this affectionate letter, the letter to the Romans, two years before this time. And now, these Christians from Rome, they could put a face and a real presence with a name and a reputation. Still, other Christians will make the 33-mile trek from Rome to three ends to meet the travelers. And that was, in and of itself, a hard day's journey to this location that contained taverns and hotels for those passing through. But I want you to think about Paul. Paul, who had suffered as a prisoner for over two years, spending much of that time in the isolation that only prisoners understand, is suddenly met by large groups of Christians, brothers and sisters, who are eagerly anticipating his arrival. Paul has been praying and planning and plotting to go to Rome for so long. That leading of the Lord is about to become a reality. And now, the encourager is encouraged. 
That's what we read in verse 15. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Paul had spent so much of his ministry, both in person and in writing, encouraging others. He poured himself out day after day, building up the churches. He learned how to encourage from the Holy Spirit, the great encourager within, and from his friend Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. But even the encouragers need encouragement. Paul took courage. And that's what it means to be encouraged, to receive courage to face your circumstances. Paul knew he was not alone. Here were brothers and sisters who were standing with him, praying for him, willing to make these one and two day journeys just to let him know how thankful they were for his ministry. And this touched Paul's heart. He did not know exactly what the future held. But no one wants to be put on trial. You don't look forward to the court date. And in his case, the stakes could not be higher. The highest court in the land awaited Paul. And so he thanked God for these brothers and sisters. Do you think the Roman soldiers that were escorting Paul noticed the way that he was received? You bet. You bet they did. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Remember, part of what Luke, the writer of Acts, is doing in the latter part of the book of Acts, part of what he's doing is drawing parallels between Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem and Paul's journey to Rome. We've talked about this. Both Jesus and Paul were on their way to stand trial. Both were accused of crimes they did not commit. Both ended up in the custody of Rome. And this particular incident that we're considering is yet another way Luke is drawing out a similarity that we should not miss. The week before Jesus' crucifixion, what we commemorate on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time. He rides in on the colt of a donkey, and the crowds welcome him. They spread their coats before him on the road, and they proclaim, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, this is Paul's own triumphal entry. He is not a king, but he serves the king. He probably walks. He's in chains, but he's triumphant. The circumstances do not keep him from rejoicing in his duty as, like Jesus, he has followed the leading of God to this point. And the crowds of believers, they come out and they meet him on his way into Rome, even as they met and welcomed the Savior on his way into Jerusalem. We should not miss the similarities here. But more importantly, we should not miss the differences. When we're drawn by Scripture to make a comparison between the experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ and someone else's experience, the reason is so we ultimately will recognize the differences. Let me unpack that. Here's the difference in our passage. Paul was going to Rome to testify about what Jesus accomplished in Jerusalem. 
And because of what Jesus Christ alone could do and did do, Paul is proclaiming the profound effect it had on his life. Jesus did what Paul could not do. And that is why Paul does what he is doing. What did Jesus do in Jerusalem? Well, right outside of the city walls, Jesus died on a Roman execution device, a cross. He bore the judgment of God for sins that he did not commit. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus against sins you and I did commit. Jesus was separated from the love of God, cut off from his presence, which is a way to describe hell. Jesus was cut off from the fellowship with his Father so that you and I don't have to be cut off from the fellowship of God in hell forever. And outside of that same city, Jerusalem, Jesus was buried. His resurrection three days later means that he will never die again, and anyone who places their trust in him is accepted by God and given eternal life in the presence of God. The death of Jesus was the ultimate countercultural act of history. The Son of God, by his death, condemned the culture of death. And we live in a culture of death. Jesus' resurrection breaks the hold of the culture on you. And because it does so, now as a Christian, you are free to engage the culture. You can sail on a ship that lies under the protection of the twin pagan gods because you're in fellowship with the real God. You no longer fear other gods. You don't serve them. Because of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ in you, you are free to influence the culture without being influenced by it. You're free to love others as yourself. The culture around us, it knows nothing of sacrificial love. It only knows the kind of love that benefits self. But as a Christian, you have seen the selfless love of God demonstrated at the cross. And if you are a Christian, you've experienced that. Because Jesus laid down his life for you, you lay down your life for others. And the culture has no way to challenge this kind of love. All it can do is stand in awe of it. So let the love of God, as demonstrated at the cross and alive in you through the resurrection, be the love that disarms the hostility of our present culture. Let the love of God and the acceptance of God through Christ set you free, and you will be free indeed. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we can take two approaches. This morning we can look around at what's happening in our culture and we can be anxious and fearful, and we can isolate ourselves, or we can do what your word calls us to, as we've just heard from this text. And we can go out and engage it with confidence, with joy, with your peace within us. Not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus Christ. 
And so, Father, we pray that we would take that latter approach. We pray for your help and for your grace. We want to be a church, Lord, that is used by you in this community. So help us not to shrink back, but to go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll give you the glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.